Hey, Dukes here, and we are about to start the show. But before we start it, I want to just send a thank you to anybody who has given us a rating or review on your podcast app, and for those of you who've reached out with some constructive criticism about the show. One of the things that many of you have said is we could stand to speed up the plot recap a bit and to organize it a bit better. And we have heard that criticism. We agree with you, and we have implemented it. However, it may be a while before you notice that because we're working something like eight episodes ahead right now. So we have made that change, but it'll be a while before you hear it. So bear with us in the meantime. And if you need to skip past the opening ramble or the plot recap, you're not going to hurt our feelings. We won't even know. <laughs> For this episode, if you want to skip the opening ramble, skip to about six and a half minutes. If you want to skip our epic convoluted plot recap, you're going to want to skip to about 28 minutes in. All right, let's start the show. If the manifest of ingredients on the bottle had been legible, it would have read something like this. Water, blackstrap molasses, imported habanero peppers, salt, garlic, ginger, tomato puree, axle grease, real hickory smoke, snuff, butts of clove cigarettes, Guinness stout fermentation dregs, uranium mill tailings, muffler cores, monosodium glutamate, nitrates, nitrites, Did you get to where they end up in Dovetail? Uh, Rita is at the moment one of my most favorite characters in the book. Yeah. Like, I think you would live in Dovetail. Like, I was like, I would? Jesse would live in Dovetail. That is where he would be sort of making things, like real things that exist from real products. Um, because he question. enjoys doing that. I do enjoy doing that, although it's I'm wondering where I would I'm also not an anti-technologist though, too. So it's I don't I don't know where I would fit in this particular world, to be honest. There is there is a moment um where uh Nell says, Oh, so you don't want to live like the Victorians and yet you rely on their ability to make a lot of money for your lifestyle or something like that. And and Nell uh Nell is it uh, no, Rita. uh, Rita's embarrassed and it just like, it reminds me of actually something I think is very common where you live in Portland and Pacific Northwest, a kind of, um, Stevenson and ladder books has commented on this. I think what he calls, um, steel collar workers. Uh, so people who essentially yes. for use older technologies to forge or fabricate nice things for wealthy people. And yep. I know a few people who make their living that way, too. And there is or even, you know, people we've known in our past, say, who are timber framers or mm -hmm. specialize in uh, uh, draft horse logging or something like that. And and I, I really admire people who have those trades and, and they do. There is a sort of reliance, though, on sort of people who are existing more in the capitalistic, technologized world being willing to pay for those services uh, these days, too. And I do think Stevenson's doing a, pointing out a little bit of hypocrisy in that moment, oh, yeah. too, which is there is a tendency for the people who are intentionally 
craftspeople in order to maintain a certain lifestyle to kind of sometimes maybe look down on the people who they rely on completely uh, mm-hmm. for their well-being. Yes, a good uh, a good point. Um, but um, yeah, before I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this book as we sort yeah, of yeah. talked about earlier. But um, how are you? You are still going through a series of uh, you know sort of like life reordering. Um, how yeah. is that going? A few days later. Uh, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night really stressed out. Um, hmm. I, the fun story I feel like that you would enjoy, though, um, is yesterday um, I was the entertainment at a four-year-old's birthday party, uh, and I was a singing skeleton who drove my camper. I drove my camper all the way across town. Was, I, I don't ever want to do this again, actually, because it was way too much driving to the a northern suburb of Chicago, and it was a Halloween-themed birthday party, which in and of itself is hilarious <laughs> on October first. <laughs> First. Uh, yeah. Um, for my friend Lulu, who is also a podcast host of some renowned. Wait, like like the like the, the Lulu there, that I'm like thinking of? There are a couple of like, well-known you... Lulus. Um, but uh, she, yes, uh, my friend is one of the well-known Lulus. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Like definitely if you if you operate in like podcast listening circles, like you will definitely cotton on to like Wait, like there's several Lulus. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm so impressed. You were a singing skeleton at the aforementioned, uh, but not totally identified Lulu, famous podcaster yeah. and radio person. Lulu personage. actually was the hype witch. Um, oh, uh, so my I was God. a singing skeleton, which is actually what we, we decided is actually what Lulu does for a living extremely well. We sang. I'm a hype witch. <laughs> Exactly. We sang a modified version of Down by the Bay that was, uh, I came up with this, Down by the Graves, where the pumpkins grow, which featured then a lot of sort of rhymes like, have you ever seen a ghoul jump in the pool? Have you ever seen a, my, the one, my favorite that I came up with, have you ever seen a scarecrow fixing her hair dough? Oh, <laughs> very nice. Kind of Appalachian accent. Have you Good ever work, seen a yeah. skeleton riding on a peloton? Little present day, little post day. Little uh, post. I like yeah. it. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, uh, is there any? Are there any photos or video of this? Uh, there of are. This? There are in fact photos and video. Uh, I could I could forward you some if you want. Please, um, please. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah, it's actually very. Uh, once again, uh, redolent of the place we used to work too. It was a very a kind of camp campfirey sort of experience. <laughs> um, well, um, having renamed my company Campfire, I obviously have uh, you know no yeah. no no qualms about uh, about that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know the past. Or, uh, it's we would uh, say, camp. Fire! Campfire. That's how I should definitely. Actually, that's what I should do. I have to go to. Uh, I have to go to a happy hour this afternoon, um, uh, which is funny given my history with drinking. Um, mm. And uh, maybe I will surprise my business partner by when we arrive at the happy hour, simply going, campfire. <laughs> Sounds like a guy. I endorse that plan. Awesome. Um, let's uh, let's yeah, get into this book. Yeah, yeah okay. I really want to talk Diamond Age. I am so excited to talk about this book. <laughs> well, I think you started plot recap last time, so maybe I'll start this one. Okay. Um, God, uh, boy, this is going to be hard. <laughs> it's a hard one. I'm, more, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely like rethinking our whole like no notes plot recap, or even yep. like sort of even vague notes. But um, or if we, we keep hit- it much bigger, I try to just say what you need to know to get to the next thing. 
Um, yep. But um, sometimes, sometimes you get just you know it's too fun to just uh, wallow in the details, especially with Stevenson, um, yep. because there's so many details to wallow in. But it's also just Stevenson's plots um, are rarely simple. Um, but yeah, so this, the book starts out actually with a wonderful first chapter, I think, um, uh, centered on a young man named Bud, who is kind of stupid and kind of an asshole. Um, and he is getting a, a skull gun, which is, shoots nano projectiles uh, mounted into his head, uh, basically so he can, uh, you know, engage in um, low-key criminal acts. Um, or I'm not sure if that was the exact plan, but he quickly realizes that that's something he can do. Oh, and he's racist, too, because it's a black man who's afraid of him, and he particularly enjoys uh, the fear in the eyes of the black man. So just a kind of a total... Uh, I don't know, piece of shit is Bud. Um, And pretty shortly, so he's going around robbing people and making a little money and feeling good about himself, and he picks the wrong family. Uh, I don't remember if this happens after the the island growing chapter two. I'm getting a little bit confused. This is after that, because the island growing chapter comes... I'm kind of skipping ahead and... It's okay, yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish Bud's tale, and you can back up to the island hopping thing, yep. then, or the island creation. Well, um, I know you are somewhat. I know you are interested in Bud's tale because it's here in the rundown as uh, as what is this doing here? So yeah, yeah I can yeah. tell that this was important to you. Yeah, well, and so so, and actually, I think I do. I know the answer to that question, but I I, I didn't necessarily understand it very quickly. So anyway, Bud rom, ro, uh, robs the wrong people who turn out to be Ashanti's from Africa, and and they um, are a economically successful ethnic group um, who also hold a grudge, um, and they seek out uh, Bud. Um, and they capture him and take him before a magistrate. And I'll, and I, I, I did skip a chapter or two yeah. sticking with Bud's plot, so I'll throw it back to you, and maybe you can fill in the missing chapter or two. Yeah, I mean, maybe a, maybe a way to approach this plot summary is to kind of identify sort of the big players. Um, there yeah, are that's a good idea. The, the New Atlantans, um, mm-hmm. who are, uh, and their, their outpost in this area is called Source Victoria, uh, and they are be- basically neo-Victorians. Uh, they call themselves New Atlantans. Um, people who don't like them very much call them Vickies. Uh, and, that is and one. Source Victoria is a floating city or an elevated city. I believe it's, it seems it's like an, it's somehow it's it's on stilts or it's it's held up. It's somehow it's up in the air. <laughs> yeah, Although I don't it fully is, understand. It is vaguely up in the air because we know later that dove you can get from dovetail to Source Victoria by walking uphill through the dog pod. Mm. And if you keep going downhill, you will eventually get either into the least territories or to the causeway that will take you to the least territories. Um, But again, uh, so there is that. There are the least territories, which this is a wonderful accident of listening instead of reading. Um, in listening, I heard it as L-E-A-S-T, as in, yes, the least of something. Which is also true. Which is also true. <laughs> um, and that, which is a very Stevenson-y thing. Uh, but yeah. it is actually the least L-E-A-S-E-D territories. Um, nobody knows, nobody really seems to know to whom they are least or whom they are from least. Uh, but that, I think, is intentional. Um, there's also the, 
The Middle Kingdom part, I wasn't quite sure of if the Middle Kingdom is a kind of religious term for this earth that we are on or this particular existence. Because I think it's, the Middle Kingdom is mainland China as opposed to Shanghai, which, which is okay. the coastal... Uh, the coastal uh, republics. The coastal yeah. republic. So I think like is, once you get like 30 or 40 miles inland, you're now in the Middle Kingdom. The middle and there kingdom. might be other sort of ethnically Chinese republics as well, as far as we know. Yeah. Like whatever happened but, to Hong Kong in this alternate <laughs> uh, it, it Maybe that is, yeah, maybe it was swallowed or who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have the Chinese coastal republics, which is basically Shanghai. We have the Middle Kingdom, which is mainland and political China. Uh, we have the New Atlantans and we have the Least Territories. Um, those are the four major areas of the book. And they also map to kind of the major players in the book that we get. Uh, we have characters from each of those areas uh, that right. we meet in this first half of the book. Uh, John Percival Hackworth, um, our, our New Atlantan or Victorian uh, or Neo-Victorian hero, semi-hero. Um, named who, similarly to hero protagonist in a, in a way. His, <laughs> na- his name is a very obvious pun. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he is kind of our major player in that area. Uh, we have mm-hmm. Nell and Harve, who were the two children of the bud that you just named. They right. find themselves, Nell in particular, in possession of a book that John Percival Hackworth makes um, that is intended to educate um, young ladies. Um, He is kind of asked to do that by a very important person in the new Atlantan government. Um, Having a young daughter himself, he compiles a version for his daughter, Fiona. He loses that book and it ends up in illicitly, illicitly, illicitly. He, He steals the data, basically. Um, Nell and Harv are basically, Nell is basically our main, main character, uh, with Harv a very important secondary main character. Um, and then we have Judge Feng, uh, who kind of, for most of the first half of the book, is a representative, a magistrate of the Chinese coastal republics, um, and finds himself entangled with first Bud, um, and then Harv, and John Percival Hackworth, and then our final major character, Dr. X, <laughs> which I just, I love it. You can, you can picture Stevenson somewhere in the mid-90s being like, what should I call these guys? Shit, whatever, Dr. X. <laughs> like, we'll just roll with it. Um, no, yeah, it's like a comic book character name, but, it, but you're given a plausible explanation, too, that, that, and which later becomes even more interesting, too, as we learn more about this character. He's yeah, maybe the great. most fascinating character in like the book. Some, one thing I wonder about Stevenson is if he starts with jokes and works backwards through <laughs> the, the plausibility yeah. to come up yeah. with interesting backstories and plots, or if he comes up with the character first and then works his way forward to the joke. Um, and, uh, and then basically yeah. the plot of this whole first half of the book is that John Percival Hackworth illicitly makes this young lady's illustrated primer, which is basically an animated educational device, loses it. It's a, it's a tablet. It's like, yeah. it, it's an, it's a really smart iPad with yeah. a nice leather binder. Um, and, uh, and then the, most of the first half of the book 
is a MacGuffin with the young lady's illustrated primer being, well, the MacGuffin. Um, and uh, we discover along the way that Dr. X actually turns out to be interested in the widespread education of about a quarter of a million disenfranchised female Chinese babies. And he kind of corners Judge Fang into helping him with that. And John Percival Hackworth, who is our sort of hapless protagonist, goes through a series of one-way plot devices that steadily narrow his narrative and life, I'm assuming, potential um, along the way to the, uh, the first half of the book. Lots of shenanigans and primarily the education of Nell occur. And she is eventually freed from her abusive mother and series of abusive mother's boyfriends, all of whom, except for one or two, I believe, are three letter name men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is another funny little thing. Um, the one re- the, the one of the few redeeming. Well, that's not totally true because the worst of them is named Bert, mm. but the best of them is named Brad. Um, but there is a Tad, a Raj, a Bud, a Matt. A, it's just it's this wonderful parade of bland male names. Almost like Stevenson was still living in Boston, hanging out at a tavern, like looking for inspiration. <laughs> I know it's a wonder none of them are named Sean. Right. Uh, since I kind of did the plot, do you want to talk a little bit about like the the technology that runs sure. through? Sure. No, I like I like the way you did that because now we don't have to go chapter by chapter because you kind of laid out the entire scenario and and yeah and it is Hackworth is being pulled through the scenario kind of like the reader haplessly the entire time uh, not and also like the reader not always quite sure what's going on. Um, yeah. So the scenario is is that all these the the different sort of localities that you refer to also contain enclaves within them that are kind of dominated by different ethnic slash religious slash philosophical slash vocational groups um, that they call files, spelled with a PH, um, and that there's, so you have the different countries and you have the different files which are engaged in trade with one another and occasional cooperation and liaisoning, but also kind of low-key warfare at all time, it seemed like, in competition too. And the warfare is largely conducted um, by nanotechnology, uh, nanosites. And so the more powerful territories uh, like uh, Source Victoria um, or... um, Shanghai. I don't, um, all of the, there, they are, um, and I guess I don't really know how New Chuzon fits into this. If it's all a leased territory or if it's divided up among the files, I don't fully understand the organization, but that you essentially, that there, there are kind of these fleets of century miniature blimps that form boundaries between these territories and a human if they're not permitted, can kind of just push the blimps out of the way and walk through if they're allowed to do that. Um, but the blimps are also are surveilling and emitting, as I understand it, lots of nanotechnology, which they call nanocytes, uh, uh, singular nanocyte, um, or is it nanophyte? Nanocyte, right? Nanocytes. 
yeah, yeah. nanosite. Um, and they'll sometimes refer to them as mites too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, especially or the pods, or there's all sorts of wonderful little slangy terms for them. So, um, so there's and I, there seems to be this kind of ongoing low key warfare between the the nanocytes. Every now and again, the warfare gets so bad that you get kind of what they call toner, uh, which is kind of like gray dust that is potentially toxic. Although it doesn't seem that bad i mean it it you definitely don't want it getting into your lungs um but you know nor would you want coal dust getting into your lungs and that is a bunch mm-hmm. of dead nanocytes because some of these entities are at war with one another um there's also a kind of economic agreement between all these entities so even though they all have their own legal system there's also kind of a shared legal system as well that liaisons between their legal system and i, f- I forget what that's called exactly but it, it it comes into play um here and there and the least territories as you mentioned earlier are kind of in the boundaries um mm-hmm. between the areas and then they're the areas that are not as well defended by the nano centuries. So you have these kind of like the, the people who live, say, in New Atlantis have a really good defense ring perimeter around them, and the least territories are kind of nearer the perimeter. And the people who are actually, you know, citizens or members of that file, the New Victorians, seem to be safer uh, mm-hmm. because they're closer to the kind of the center, um, farther from, from the sort of the area where the nano battle. Uh, seems yeah. to be happening. They have, at all a, time. Uh, they have a stronger, uh, like basically, immunocytes system. Right. It seems like the least territories are in the area where the nano wars are often taking place, yeah. too. And it does seem like very rarely does do these wars get to the point of actually leading to mass ca- mass casualties and death. Um, although there are, I think, occasional assassinations. Um, I'm trying to think of what else we need to know about this territory. I mean, we know that the the coastal Chinese, like Shanghai territory, is uh, is controlled by a fairly brutal and efficient um, Confucian justice system, of which Judge <laughs> Fang is a participant, and he has rather extreme powers, you know, to say find people guilty or torture them. Uh, luckily for the people who come before Judge Fang, in in most cases he he's generally pretty relatively compassionate and and obliged towards his duties, which is not to say that he's not capable of being quite harsh when he needs to be, um, but he's not corrupt. Uh, he takes his job very very seriously. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like you gave us a really good setup of everything that happened. I guess the only other sort of plot thing that you need to know is Dr. Doctor X figures out that uh, Hackworth has, um, well, he hasn't figured it out. Hackworth actually works with Dr. X to perpetuate this theft. And when Hackworth loses the book, as you mentioned earlier, Dr. X is interested in also obtaining it, and he has leverage against Hackworth, so he's sort of working with Hackworth to try to obtain this book. But um, some of the new Victorians, including, I can't remember our, the Lord's name, the guy from Iowa. Uh, uh, Chung Sik Finkel, Finkel McGraw. McGraw. Finkel McGraw. Chung, Chung Sik Finkel McGraw. Uh, Chung miscegenation Sik- being one of <laughs> Stevenson's, like, tropes and obsessions that he just can't yeah. get away from. Yeah, yeah. Um, a uh, ethnically Chinese man who was like adopted and raised in Iowa. 
um, and then um, was a very successful technologist, I think early on in the nanotechnology development. Um, he and another sort of member of the intelligence service enlist Hackworth as a secret service to pretend to be going along with Dr. X and Dr. X's efforts to get uh, the primer but in fact, they, they've promised him that if he gives them information on Dr. X, that you know, not only will they not prosecute him, um, they'll actually reward him handsomely. Um, so he's sort of yes, he will um, acting end as up, a double agent. He'll end up knighted. Um, he, right. he he believes uh, he's and he also he's he's very much concerned with his daughter Fiona's future yeah, too, and wants absolutely. her wants her to be very, very successful. And that is kind of his chief motivation. And he's, we understand that he, I think we understand that he's a brilliant engineer. He works for one of the leading firms. Um, He also seems like naive and even stupid in some ways too. He's not very good at the machinations that he gets up to, but he is a brilliant engineer. He's what you want as that character. Right. a, a brilliant character motivated by familial duty who just he like he he can't turn the high beams on. He's yeah. like, ah, he just lurches from one bad decision to the next in like an ever ascending group of uh, he's just a pawn that, that keeps yeah. moving up the ladder. Um, and I can't remember in from reading it, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but I don't. But from the sense of the way that things usually go for characters like that, I can't really imagine too many great things for John Percival Hackworth. But we'll see. Yeah, he may kind of blunder through with a sort of fool's luck, right? Um, right. Uh, he may land on his feet. And the first half of the book ends um, in where he has been sent to uh, essentially North America, and I think the Pacific Northwest, to do some kind of mission for Dr. X. I don't think I quite figured out why he was sent there. Um, and um, But as he's doing that, um, he's still reporting in to Finkel McGraw and the other Victorian and um, some of these um, nanosites that he programmed several years ago when he lost the book have let him know that the book has been found. It's on the move. And this is because Nell, the young girl being raised by the book... Um, and Harv have, as you said, escaped their abusive family situation. They've left, um, they're now out of doors, sort of wandering around, kind of like homeless people. And they end up being taken in by a colony of artisans who work with their hands um, called Dovetail, uh, which of course is a kind of uh, woodworking joint. People who build things like chairs and wrought iron rails and watches, one assumes, and things and like that. paper. And paper, real, pa- real paper, uh, because w- one of the technological things in this particular world is that nothing is really made anymore. It, it comes out of these large things called matter compilers or marvelously MCs. MCs, <laughs> right. Like, which just, are yeah. 3D printers, basically. Yeah, which are, are 3D printers um, with uh, with a whole with a with all of the kinks worked out, really. Yeah. Um, there yeah. is a hilarious early scene in the book where Nell compiles a whole bunch of mattresses for all of her stuffed animals and her brother Harv, who I, I assume there is probably some general, probably small fee for doing this kind of matter compiling. Um, this is like another thing that Neil Stevenson it, like imagined before it would happen. 
Um, but like eight year old children finding a way to break into their parents, um, like media systems and just like downloading like thousands of dollars of media. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how most things are made in this world, including as we find in an early scene, an Island for, uh, princess, uh, Elizabeth. Princess Elizabeth, the daughter Elizabeth. of Queen Victoria II. The second. The <laughs> second. So, so, so possibly someone who may go on to be Queen Elizabeth the third. The third, one would assume. Um, uh, and although the, that hasn't the island yet. itself is going to, after her birthday party, um, disappear. It is going Whoa. to sort of, yeah, yeah. There's this great little moment where it's a, where he, it's kind of a throwaway. Um, but I found. And this kind of goes into my first few points, um, which we'll get to in a few minutes, I think. Um, but I just found the writing of the first few pages and chapters of this book uh, so unbelievably beautiful and dense um, yeah. that I really enjoyed lingering in them and the description of that island in particular. But you have a question about Bud's plot. Yeah. And I, you know, I wrote this was I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, the first time I read <laughs> Bud's plot and, you know, um, Spoiler, um, Judge Fang sentences him to death uh, for what he does in a scene that is both, you know, sort of sad, but also kind of funny, too. Um, part of the humor comes from one of Neil Stevenson's favorite kinds of cultural ironies, which is the irony of matching, mismatching accent to ethnic identity. So Judge Fang, uh, even though he is um, racially Chinese, grew up in New York and has a kind of like New York Brooklyn accent. Um, but although he is a magistrate and a judge in uh, in in Shanghai, and and the whole backstory there, I guess the other thing we should sort of this is an era. This seems to be set in the middle of the 21st century, maybe 20, 2050 or something like that. Or, um, and um, it's an era of hyper-immigration. It just seems like wherever you go, everybody's there. Um, yep. Which And it that's not really explained other than one has the sense there's some kind of economic motivation, but it just, it seems like, you know, there might be traditional Chinese control of the Chinese mainland, but there are also just about every other ethnicity or racial group you can imagine has found its way to the coast of China at this point. And apparently also the Pacific Northwest, we learn later yeah. too. So it's, I mean, um, it's, it's one of it, one of his obsessions is the idea of failed states giving way to extraterritorial enclaves. Um, right. Like this, this world could be the world of Snow Crash fast forwarded another 50 years. I mean, he even uses the term claves. Um, but yeah, he, he likes nothing so much as this idea of sm physically small areas that have their own particular political charter. And so you can go past like a Maoist enclave in Shanghai. And then right after that, another kind of enclave where members um, of those enclaves could potentially have uh, political asylum. Well, you actually, it's funny, uh, you actually just articulated one of my other questions for you, which is, do you think this book is in the same continuity as Snow Crash? So maybe we'll start with that. Mm, I don't think it is. I think that it, uh, insofar, I mean, yes, insofar as it springs from the same brain um, that is obsessed with the same ideas and also like refreshingly not worried about being obsessed with the same ideas. Um, you know, I think everybody hears that old 
trope that writers, all writers only have one story and are continually finding different ways to retell it. Mm. Um, I think Stevenson rises above that, but I do think he does have a series of things that fascinate and obsess him. And I, this, it feels different than the world of Snow Crash. The world of Snow Crash feels a little grimier and a little more anarchic and a little less well-ordered, um, which I think fits with one of the big themes of this book, which is the clash of enthalpy and entropy. Yeah, and I think that's right. I do think you could imagine if this if this book was set in the same continuity as Snow Crash, then the time in which Snow Crash was taking place would be thought of as sort of a dark age, uh, yeah, that this sort totally. of new order emerged out of. Um, but I also think that Snow Crash is, generally speaking, uh, more cartoonish. This book feels like it is maybe set in a future that might be a little more plausible still i still don't think it's super plausible um but that it it the degree of um fantasy uh is ratcheted down a little Mm -hmm. bit um i i think uh for this book too um well question about bud plot um which is just sort of like Bud dies within, I don't know, 50 pages or something like that. Um, yes, his kids become major characters. Um, but why, why do you think this book starts with Bud's story? Um, since he's not a character who we follow for a very long time. And nor does much that he do really, in, apart from impregnating his girlfriend, uh, affect <laughs> future events. His girlfriend. Which really... Tequila. Anybody, anybody with three letters in their first name could have done, you know. And there's, there's actually like, like Bud, sort of hilariously and sadly for him, doesn't really even know if he is Nell's father. Yeah. Um. But um. It's I a great reread. The, it's yeah. I reread the chapter where he dies, and it is. It's like that. That last moment is actually gen- genuinely sad. Yeah. I think, I mean, in a lot, like, hopefully, I think we'll talk about this. I really do think this is the book where Stevenson, as a writer, grows up. And some of the, like, sort of wonderful set pieces and moments of, like, imagination that we see in Zodiac and Snow Crash, for sure, are married to a real emotional um, robustness. And, um, I mean, I, thinking back to my memories of reading this book in the 90s, um, I really remembered this moment of Bud, um, but probably because it was the first part of the book. There's one other moment of the book that I really remember that we haven't gotten to yet. And so I'm beginning to suspect it wasn't from this book. And it's from does it, somewhere else. Does it else. involve colored con- condoms? Uh, it doesn't. I did listen to that okay. part today and I was like, yeah. my God. <laughs> like, I was like, crap, we're going to have to like we have to research a whole bunch of like Etruscan fertility rituals and stuff for the next episode. Yeah. Like, Coming up next episode, listener. Right. Uh, so many fertility rituals. Are they offensive or not? Um, are they problematic or not? Anyway, next episode. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have an answer for you. Um, there, I think there's another deliberator chapter that is not Bud's story, but uh, like we, with Stevenson, we always do get one of these chapters that 
brings us into the world like in media res. And he's pretty um, not nostalgic about those characters. He is very happy, like like Hero as the Deliverator. As soon as the car is trashed, the Deliverator is dead. Hero is reborn as a thirty-something failed software engineer. Software, which engineer, is what he, which is what the Deliverator was all along. But it's exactly. sort, of, sort of like but a new a, character hatches out of the ashes of the Deliverator, <laughs> out of yeah. the exploding car in the swimming pool. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I I think it is important. Um, we get to we do get to meet Judge Fang um, and his uh, hilarious sidekicks. Um, who are important as well. Um, but, um, I think it is, I think it does have to be here. And I think he does a pretty good job of, um, setting it up, knocking it down and moving on. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is a strong start, maybe not quite as strong of a start as the deliverer, but it's memorable. And I do think you are even that chapter plus the island creation chapter, which I think are right after each other, those two chapters give you the world, you know, yep. and they're both pretty memorable and just sort of like Judge Fang's style of justice, which is, you know, the evidence compiled against Bud is is pretty obvious, but Bud has no chance to argue for himself. Basically, once the evidence is presented, Judge Fang takes a second, rubs his temples, and then says, you're guilty. And then 30 seconds later, Bud uh, has left the courtroom and his body explodes, um, which I think is painless. Hope I hope is painless. And, you know, Judge Fang moons, moves on to the next juvenile delinquent who has assaulted some, you know, family yeah. or something like that. And it, you get the sense that this is happening all the time. These are the sort of cultural encounters that this, this kind of workaday judge and his hilarious sidekicks are dealing with. So, yeah, I think it just brings you into the world super, super well. But it was when I was reading it. I was, I did have that same sense of like, what's this doing here? You know, why don't we just start with Nell? Uh, why don't, you know, Nell is the most interesting character. Um, and actually, you know, we didn't say this in our recap, but to me, my, my I, I think what's so great about this book and what I, what I really enjoy this time around, which I didn't, I think I read it in my mid or early 20s, is I just love the pedagogy of the primer. And Nell, you know, Nell, this this super book is educating Nell by telling her a series of stories that are based on myths and based on kind of like grim fairy tales. And the book is observing her circumstances and is smart enough. It's driven by, I think, what they call a pseudo intelligence, which mm -hmm. is like an artificial yeah. intelligence. Um, and the, the pseudo-intelligence, or maybe it's a system of independent pseudo-intelligences that, that, that Hackworth has sort of hacked together into a kind of, because uh, it, it, it sounds like he was responsible for the engineering of the book, um, is, is very aware of Nell's physical and emotional challenges. She has a very, very tough life. Harv, her mm -hmm. brother, is kind of her protector, but he can only protect her so much. Um, and she has these, you know, stuffed animal toys. And the book just creates this wonderful world of imagination about Princess Nell and her animal toys, including one of whom is a dinosaur. And we get a wonderful chapter that's just dinosaurs survival story, which is a wonderful it's amazing. Great little short story <laughs> like, all into I itself. Love. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're meant to understand that the book is generating this based on some kind of like patterns and mythic things, but according to the inputs it's getting from Nell, but also it's smart enough to tell that Nell's in danger and she needs emotional support. She's also being taught martial arts. She's also being taught to speak like a Victorian, which is very, very important in this world because language uh, and class... um, Language is a marker of class, and so if you speak like a Victorian, people will treat you uh, like a Victorian and treat you at least as though you deserve more respect than a, say, street urchin does. Yeah. And um, so to me, those are just my favorite moments in, in the entire book up to, up to this, uh, yeah. you know, at least this first part, too. And this way, I think to me it's what makes it a really great book and not just a kind of fun sci-fi you know, not just another kind of like rollicking sci-fi parody romp, which yeah. it has elements of. I, I really like I am I as I put in our notes, like I am deeply embarrassed about my estimation of this book mm. when I read it in high school, which was like, yeah, it's not as fun as Snow Crash. <laughs> and like and I'm just I'm so disappointed that I didn't pay more attention um, because there, there is so much going on in this book that is wonderful and important, um, and I, I really want to between this session, between this session and the next session, um, go and read some of the reviews that the mm. Diamond Age got because I, I yeah. think I don't think it ended up getting I don't think it was received as positively as Snow Crash was, and I don't think that's fair. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I I agree that it's much better than I remember. Uh, I don't know that I would quite put it at the level of Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon based on my memory. Although we're not through with it yet, um, yeah. it's denser than Snow Crash, and and you you have to work a little harder to follow it yeah. than Snow Crash, which might be some of the reason for what you're describing, particularly if you were a younger reader. Oh my God! Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I kind of this is uh, I think we we have a few readings. Um, yeah, do you want to do a reading? Want to get to? Yeah, this first one is mostly about the density of the prose. Mm. Um, his diction is unbelievably heightened in this book, but then also, like Stevenson does in general, there are flights of beauty and then rem- like reminders that the body is always here and that we are physical and there is blood and viscera and shit, um, which I just think is, is, is really good and responsible and marvelous. Um, so, um, yeah, this is, uh, this is the second chapter of the book. Um, so this one is source Victoria description of its environs. Source Victoria's air intakes erupted from the summit of the Royal Ecological Conservatory, like a spray of a hundred meter long calla lilies. Below, the analogy was perfected by an inverted tree of root-like plumbing that spread fractally through the diamondoid bedrock of New Chuzan, terminating in the warm water of the South China Sea as numberless capillaries arranged in a belt around the smart coral reef several dozen meters beneath the surface. One big, huge pipe gulping up seawater would have done roughly the same thing, just as the lilacs could have been replaced by one howling maw, birds and litter whacking into a bloody grid somewhere before they could gum up the works. But it wouldn't have been ecological. The geotechs of imperial tectonics would not have known an ecosystem if they'd been living in the middle of one. 
but they did know that ecosystems were especially tiresome when they got foobard. So they protected the environment with the same implacable, plodding, green-visored mentality that they applied to designing overpasses and culverts. Thus, water seeped into Source Victoria through microtubes, much the same way it seeped into a beach, and air wafted into it silently down the artfully skewed exponential horns of those thrusting calla lilies, each horn a point in parameter space not awfully far from some central ideal. They were strong enough to withstand typhoons, but flexible enough to rustle in a breeze. Birds, wandering inside, sensed a gradient in the air, pulling them down into night and simply chose to fly out. They didn't even get scared enough to shit. Like there's, there's echoes of the Deliverator's suit um, that uh, uh, perspiration wafting through it like a freshly napalmed forest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we're we're just in we're in we're kind of Stevenson at his best um, at his most lyrical, and this is a dense passage. I mean, you really have to track the syntax of that second sentence in particular of that first paragraph, um, because the verb in it is was perfected by, and then you have to read the rest of the sentence to figure out what it was perfected by, uh, and it's it's pretty marvelous. Um, it. It employs a lot of Victorian tropes of of literature, but mm. at the same time, he's also attaching it to this kind of very twentieth, twenty first century way of writing that is remarkable. And I, I just really I, listening to that, I had to listen to it a few times, and I was like, "Fuck, that's good." And then I went and read it, and was like, "Oh, it's even better when you read it." I listened to it a couple times, and just now, I. I finally got the visual of the first sentence. It took me three times, which is, yeah, and it, it's it's not that Source Victoria is a floating city. It's that Source Victoria is kind of like on a mountain or a hill, but part of the same artificial island, New Chizan, that includes the least territories as well. And and I I hadn't really fully processed what the relationship of Source Victoria to the rest of New Chuzan was. It's the same landmass, um, and you get it from the pipes making their way. And you I, and I assume because it's diamond, you can see the infrastructure too, which is also kind of brilliant and beautiful. Although oddly not very Victorian, uh, the Victorians <laughs> did not like to see their water and their shit and piss, you know, and where it was going. You know, if you look at Victorian houses, there's all sorts of elaborate, um, the servants enter a different way and the cooking mm-hmm. happens and in a, in a, you know, the kitchen, there are no open floor plan kitchens. The guests do not see the cooking and the no. food in many cases passes through, through a lazy Susan or a dumb waiter or something such that, you know, there would be no possibility that a guest would even see something as, um, you know, disorderly and disreputable as cooking. So th- that's kind of yeah. interesting too, but yeah. I really, I I do think one of the central like conflicts of this book is the question of, of, of entropy and enthalpy. Like, Mm. are we heading towards order or disorder? Mm. Um, And what is brilliant about this book is that any novel has to head towards disorder. Like you cannot write a novel that is narratively interesting 
that heads. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, well, it all can resolve in order, right? That often the yes. end of the book okay. is is order being achieved, but you have to go through disorder to get there, right? True. Yeah, and that's that's when we get. So that's comedy, right? Right. So we get we end in marriage. Um, so we do get to order through wild disorder, um, or we get to wild disorder, and that's drama. <laughs> Or disorder, I think drama, maybe I'm wrong about this, you've studied this more, but I think dr tragedy or drama can still end in order, but it's often a new sadder order, right? Oh, yeah. It's, a, uh, it's, it's an order that doesn't include a lot of the people right, that were that we care previously about. part of the order. Right. Or, um, or even if it does, they've lost something. They've been changed in some way that is sad. But the, um, the, ep the epigraph of this book is, by nature, men are nearly alike. By practice, they get to be wide apart. Mm. And I think that that is an interesting epigraph because it leaves open the questions of, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Um, and I think that that's, those are the questions that Stevenson is posing to us as we go through this book. Yeah. I'm remembering the epigraphs of The Sun Also Rises, which is mm. the, the first one I think is, you are a lost generation Gertrude Stein in correspondence to Hemingway, and then the sun also rises, which I think is a quote from the Bible, but also maybe a response to you are a lost huh. generation. Too. Cool. I have another reading I wanted. I have several readings I want to do. I'm not sure we'll get to them all tonight, but actually that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you. So earlier I described this world, this scenario as being perhaps a, in a similar scenario as Snow Crash, but Snow Crash being kind of a dark age and this being an, a more stable era that emerged. It, I don't think that's what Stevenson is indicating. I think it's its own mm -hmm. continuity. But even if that were the case, question I keep batting back and forth in my head is, is this a utopian novel or is it a dystopian novel? Oh, do you want me to try to answer that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I I find this to be a dystopian novel. Um, I think that it is, it's what happens, it's like if we're in latter stage uh, like capitalism right now, this to me strikes me as end stage capitalism. Mm. Um, though I'm interested to see in the second half of the book if Dr. X's efforts to re-educate basically an entire generation of um, what, of disenfranchised female Chinese babies might end up bringing about some sort of new world order. But the fracturing of communities, um, the reliance of all of that upon economies, um, and then the further stratification of wealth this is this strikes to me as a more subtle and nuanced dystopia than Snow Crash was, which is just like which is just like wow. I mean, it's just a it's just a disaster. Yeah. Um, and um, but I, I this I would not want to live in this world. Yeah, I don't think my answer to my own question I think is that it's actually neither because to me it feels equally. It seems like to me it feels similarly to have a mixture of chaos and order and certain benefits of technology, recent technology being available to all, 
that our current age has, which in, in the sense that it seems to me that technology has solved some of the nagging issues of poverty in this scenario in that there's free food available and it seems like shelter is affordable um, and that it, and you can get you know you can get a blanket from a free matter replicator then there's free medicine available too and so some of the challenges of poverty it seems like have been solved and yet there still is tremendous poverty and if anything the social classes seem even harder to transcend than they are mm -hmm. now, or at least similarly hard. There's great yeah. wealth, there's great poverty, and what many people, at least all of our protagonists, are engaged in um, is, is actually trying to either, in a small way, for selfish reasons, or in a large way, for unselfish reasons, they're all struggling with social class, mm -hmm. basically, and, and restricted opportunity. You know, Hackworth yeah. is not trying to get his invention, which is a, a book that can educate anybody and give them the abilities they need to succeed in this world. Hackworth's not trying to get that to everybody, although it is interesting when Hackworth discovers that somebody has it has been using the book, his first impulse is that it should not be taken away from her. Right. Um, I don't know if you remember that detail, yeah, but yeah. that's a that's a that's a that's a moment of Hackworth showing good character in that yeah. moment. Even though he doesn't know this girl, um, he he doesn't think that uh, the book should be taken away. Um, but then you have other characters who are saying, oh, if such a thing thing exists, we need in this case, what is it, ha half a million semi-abandoned infants um, trying to get them educated. I mean, it, 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 you know, all of these characters are trying to struggle with limited opportunity and a in impressive class system, um, mm -hmm. even though there are technological wonders and even technological wonders that are available to all. If it's a dystopia, then maybe we're in a dystopia, too, which we might be. I mean, yes. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> for sure. I mean, we're the the one thing that we have over this world is that we are not yet living in a police state, mm. and this is a police state. There, everything is recorded, everything is surveilled. Um, right. Um, the the surveillance allows the the social structures to remain in place and allows Judge Fang, in his own words, to be judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. One reading I wanted to do, and one observation, this is interesting. So Finkel McGraw, the equity lord, at one point, we get a little bio of him, and he's interesting. He grew up in Iowa, and I believe even went to the same university Stevenson lived in the town. I think Stevenson lived in Ames as a teenager, and Finkel McGraw went to the university that's in Ames. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and... Um, Finkel McGraw, at one point, we were, we're, there's, there's a direct statement, and I, I don't have this passage, unfortunately, um, but I think I, can have, I have it almost memorized, which is, to, it's something like, Finkel McGraw developed a philosophy which was 
iconoclastic at the time he grew up, which we th- might be the 1990s, uh, at a time mm-hmm. of sort of cultural relativism and kind of celebration of multiculturalism and diversity, uh, which was that some cultures are simply better than others. Um, <laughs> that racism, biological racism is wrong and stupid. Humans are all the same. Um, but some cultures are simply better than others. This is not a question of taste or um, it is objectively observable based on because some cultures conquer others and others die out. Um, and, you know, this is a very direct, very explicit uh, expression of cultural racism. Um, and I was I that intrigued me because I'm Stevenson is very um circumspect about his politics and he's mm-hmm. he's interested in anthropology and he's interested in race and i think it can be tempting to suspect that maybe stevenson is also dabbling in cultural racism um there's a later passage where finkel mcgraw makes an argument in favor of hypocrisy or not exactly in favor of hypocrisy um but voicing a preference for hypocrisy over cultural relativism and i do have that mm-hmm. one marked and i w- i wanted to read that one just cuz it's an example of one of the ideas that the book is tangling with yep uh finkel mcgraw is talking um to hackworth and um let's see major napier who's the intelligence officer I love Major Napier. Finkel McGraw says, you know, when I was a young man, Finkel McGraw is, we're told, has a bland, twangy Midwestern accent. Uh, You know, when I was a young man, hypocrisy was deemed the worst of vices, Finkel McGraw said. It was all because of moral relativism. You see, in that sort of climate, you're not allowed to criticize others. After all, if there is no absolute right and wrong, then what grounds is there for criticism? Finkel McGraw paused, knowing that he had the full attention of his audience, and began to withdraw a calabash pipe and various related supplies and implements from his pockets. As he continued, he charged the calabash with a blend of leather-brown tobacco so redolent that it made Hackworth's mouth water. He was tempted to spoon some of it into his mouth. Now, this led to a good deal of general frustration, for people are naturally censorious and love nothing better than to criticize others' shortcomings. And so it was that they seized on hypocrisy and elevated it from a ubiquitous peccadillo into the monarch of all vices. For you see, even if there is no right or wrong, you can find grounds to criticize another person by contrasting what he has espoused with what he has actually done. In this case, you're not making any judgment whatsoever as to the correctness of his views or the morality of his behavior. You're merely pointing out that he has said one thing and done another. Virtually all political discourse in the days of my youth was devoted to the ferreting out of hypocrisy. You wouldn't believe the things they said about the original Victorians. Calling someone a Victorian in those days was almost like calling them a fascist or a Nazi. Both Hackworth and Major Napier were dumbfounded. Your grace, Napier exclaimed, I was naturally aware that their moral stance was radically different from ours, but I am astonished to be informed that they actually condemned the first Victorians. Of course they did, Finkel McGraw said. Because the first Victorians were hypocrites, Hackworth said, getting it. Finkel McGraw beamed upon Hackworth like a master upon his favorite pupil. It's it's fun, um... 
when I read this, I remembered reading it the first time. And I think the first time I read it, I assume first of all, I was kind of struck by the insight of it, which I'm now it doesn't seem quite as as surprising or intelligent to me as when I read it the first time. It seems like a misunderstanding of cultural relativism. Um, but I also assumed, based on what I knew about Neil Stevenson, that this was Stevenson's point of view about cultural mm-hmm. relativism, too. Um, and I think that's interesting. And I think there are other clues from time to time that Stevenson seems to at least be thoughtful about the, the the benefits of what we might call conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm also, as I'm reading this more and more, I don't necessarily think this is Stevenson's point of view. Uh, I think he's engaging <laughs> with the idea. Um, but if you think about it, Finkel McGraw is not one of the more sympathetic characters in this book. He's impressive. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we do know about Chung Sik Finkel McGraw, I can't resist doing his full surname, it's just mm. too much fun, <laughs> um, is that he is a subversive. That we, we learned this early on from Hackworth yeah. when he kind of discovers, oh my God, this guy who is supposed to be this like bastion of neo-Victorian ideas is in fact um, subverting those very ideas. And so Chung Sik Finkel McGraw is probably going to be wary and suspicious of having the claims of hypocrisy leveled at him. Um, And so, which is probably why he's thinking about it and obsessed with it. Um, And yeah, I I think it is up in the air what Stevenson's point of view is, because the argument that Chung Sik Finkel McGraw is making is that it is foolish to simply level the claim at somebody that they are bad because they are hypocrites. Because what that does is that allows you to sidestep the, the, the meat and potatoes of, what, of their actual argument or their desire to, to what they're doing in the world. Right. Um, Stevenson looking, you know, Stevenson is probably looking at her own particular era mm-hmm. where the worst, one of the worst attacks you can make on your political opponent is that they are a flip-flopper. Right. Which is a great way to not have to say anything yourself in terms of um, your own particular policy ideas. Yeah. And um, yeah, I so I struggle with this because this is one uh, the a a well honed tool of conservative thinking is to be like. No, 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 all of you are simply splitting hairs. You're getting lost in the details of you said this and you said that, and you're sort of doing kind of like verbal taxonomy. Um, Legalism, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, you like the, you know, oh, the woke, the woke revolution is simply interested in defining this and that so they can say what we can say and not say. Um, and that is a specious, that is as specious an argument as what they are leveling a claim against, which I am also like willing to think about some of those claims as perhaps specious. I think that I read this 20 years ago and I don't remember reading it, but when I hit this passage again, I was like, oh, I think this really kind of did influence my thinking a little bit because now to this day, I'm a little bit wary of simply point there's a lot of you know like twitter style argument that's just like ron DeSantis. great example ron DeSantis is calling for aid to florida now but he voted against aid to new jersey in 
whatever 2012 or something like that and it's like well does that mean he's wrong now or that what he's calling for which is helping people who've been struck by a hurricane is a bad idea i mean maybe it is useful to point out the hypocrisy in some context or another but if you're simply evaluating an idea an idea is a good idea or a bad idea regardless of the person espousing it is a hypocrite or not yeah i think you i mean what you're bringing up is the difference between good faith and bad faith right and like right. and i think you know george orwell would agree with you that those who there's there's bad faith hypocrisy um, and then good faith hypocrisy, which is that people are complicated and that the world is complicated. And yeah, holding somebody to everything they have said forever is, is, that, is a, that is sort of bad faith um, because you are not allowing any kind of, you know, th that, that is a, I do not want to live in that world. Unfortunately, I think we do. But that is a world where nuance can exist and um, and people can't change, and and that is uh, that's that's unfortunate. And if you're you know trying to determine whether Finkel McGraw is a good faith or a bad faith actor when he's making this argument, it's all a kind of Victorian uh, subtextual setup, blackmailing and bribing, <laughs> stick and carrot. Hackworth to spy on Dr. X, who we come to learn, although maybe up to some bad things, is also trying to do something that seems like a pretty good thing for yeah. 250,000 children who desperately need some help. So it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know how Finkel McGraw is going to come across by the end of this book, but it's one of the things I'm going to be reading for. Right now, yeah. I'm putting him on the sort of not such a great guy side of mm -hmm. things. Um, there's another observation about Finkel McGraw that Hackworth makes at one point too, which is that the really wealthy, successful people aren't necessarily any smarter than Hackworth. They just have a personality that makes them more successful, which is the thing that he thinks uh, the primer, uh, the magical book, uh, is going to um, solve for his daughter, yeah. is going to yeah. give her the personality of a winner of somebody who starts businesses, who tries, who takes risk, which, um, and one is reminded, say, of Elon Musk, right, who is a brilliant engineer, I think, um, but, or, or other billionaires these days who aren't necessarily, don't always seem that smart, uh, but definitely have had, have gumption, and, you know, their gumption got them somewhere. <laughs> um, again, Stevenson seems pretty prescient with this book. I think. My God, yeah. Let's get your let's get your passage in. I have a very short paragraph I want to read too, and then we can go to the trivia. Um, this is um, uh, the, the the name of this chapter is Hackworth compiles the young lady's illustrated primer, particulars of the underlying technology, um, and it's a few. Uh, it's probably about ten or fifteen paragraphs deep. The universe was a disorderly mess the only interesting bits being the organized anomalies. Hackworth had once taken his family out rowing on the pond in the park, and the ends of the yellow oars spun off compact vortices, and Fiona, who had taught herself the physics of liquids through numerous experimental beverage spills and in the bathtub, demanded an explanation for these holes in the water. 
She leaned over the gunwale, Gwendolyn holding the sash of her dress, and felt those vortices with her hands, wanting to understand them. The rest of the pond, simply water in no particular order, was uninteresting. We ignore the blackness of outer space and pay attention to the stars, especially if they seem to order themselves into constellations. Common as the air meant something worthless, but Hackworth knew that every breath of air that Fiona drew, lying in her little bed at night, just a silver glow in the moonlight, was used by her body to make skin and hair and bones. The air became Fiona, and deserving, no, demanding, of love. Ordering matter was the sole endeavor of life, whether it was a jumble of self-replicating molecules in the primordial ocean, or a steam-powered English mill turning weeds into clothing, or Fiona lying in her bed, turning air into Fiona. My God. You, 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 I mean, if, if Stevenson is not a father at this point, I, I, where does he, I mean, you, you just, the book is, is, is just dripping with an awareness of a father's devotion to a child and how powerful a motivating force can be. I mean, Hackworth is pretty one dimensional in that regard. He seems to have yeah. no other desires that we know of, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really lovely. It's poetic, too. I mean, it's oh, al- it it's almost is like you could you could reformat it as a sonnet or something like that. Yeah. It's it's, it's gorgeous. And then and just the the I mean, you learn so much about Hackworth's. It's one of those it's one of those passages in a book that does the double duty that all of us as writers that are hoping to achieve which is character elucidation through moving prose. <laughs> like, I, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it just astonishes me and, and manages to also capture and um, recapitulate the themes that I think Stevenson is scattering throughout the book. It's as a piece of craft, I, I, just, I just adore those two paragraphs. They stood out for me too, yeah, it's quite lovely. Uh, what is yours? Um, well, I'll, I'm going to set it up a little bit, which is, you know, and we, we both talked about how this book flew a little bit under the radar. It was a successful book, I think, right? It wasn't like Zodiac, which didn't make much of a splash. Like, this was not considered a failure. But it is sandwiched between Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon, which were both massive hits. And it didn't yeah. achieve that status. And I think part of it is that it was seen... I believe this was right around the time that the term steampunk was coming into vogue, and it was seen as yep. like another steampunk novel. And even if you think about it, starting with Bud and the Skull Gun, it also kind of feels very William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, you know, original, mm-hmm. just another cyberpunk novel, but with neo-Victorian, so it's a little bit steampunk. It's It feels like maybe it was treated like pastiche, but I'm thinking about the DNA of this novel, and like, I, there are three Victorian-era writers who stand out to me that all feel like they shaped the book. And one is Charles Dickens, you know, obviously, obviously. Yeah. Um, another, actually, maybe even more so, is Mark Twain, because the plot really reminds me of The Prince and the Pauper, which I think we always think of as a Dickens book, but it's actually Mark Twain 
sort of writing like Dickens, I think, in a way. Um, and then yeah. the other writer it kind of reminds me of actually is Arthur Conan Doyle, um, and especially Judge Fang and some of his machinations. A lot of the, um, the uh, nanosites in this book plot-wise function kind of like the Baker Street Irregulars, you know? Ah, they're, they're, right. They're, oh, my God. <laughs> they're kind of like roaming around, gathering intelligence for our various investigators. Um, so this is, um, this is when Bud has figured out that the Ashantis are hunting him for what he did mm -hmm. to one of their number. And he um, he's trying to evade them, and he's kind of nervous. Very soon after that, Bud swapped clothes with an indigent down on the beach, giving up all his black leather and coming away with a T-shirt and shorts of his own. The T-shirt was much too small. It bound him under the armpits and pressed against his muscles so that he felt the eternal twitching even more than usual. He wished he could turn the stimulators off for now, relax his muscles even for one night, but that would require a trip to the mod parlor. He had to figure the Ashanti had the mod parlors all staked out. He could have gone to any of several brothels, but he didn't know what kind of connections these Ashanti might have, or even what the hell an Ashanti was exactly, and he wasn't sure he could get a boner under these circumstances anyway. Here's the sentence I love. As he wandered the streets of the least territories, primed to level his sights at any black person who blundered into his path, he reflected on the unfairness of his fate. How was he to know that that guy belonged to a tribe? I love, as he wandered the streets of the least territories, interjection, primed to level his sights at any black person who blundered into his path, comma, he reflected on the unfairness of his fate. <laughs> that is a Arthur Conan Doyle sentence, actually. I think it's something Doyle did a lot. I, you know, reading Sherlock Holmes as a kid, I didn't really notice it. But going back and reading some of the Sherlock Holmes stories later, you see... Holmes is often insulting the people around him, but he's doing it in these sort of subtle ways that the people who are being insulted don't always pick up on. The other writer, actually, it reminds me of who does this a lot is Patrick O'Brien, who wrote the Aubrey Matron novels. I don't think you've read Patrick O'Brien, but I know your father. Not yet is quite a fan. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, if we continue gonna, this gonna, podcast, gonna... we want to do some yeah, Aubrey Matron, Patrick O'Brien. Uh, O'Brien is often doing this thing where he'll point out some hypocrisy or stupidity of his characters in a, in, in a sentence like that one where the reader is supposed to pick up on it, but the character is oblivious to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're right. Like, this is a book in a lot of ways that, that plays with the ideas of hypocrisy. Um, and, um, and I think I, I would guess that Stevenson has dealt throughout his career with hasty accusations about his own particular beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's chosen to do is to assemble a whole bunch of ideas in the arena of his books and let us do what we are doing um, and, and wrestle with them. And like, like, God bless you, Neil Stevenson, for doing that, uh, for, for doing what a writer does best, which is elucidate interesting ideas in moving ways for us to encounter in sentences just like that one that you just read, which are enjoyable and important. Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually wrote this out. Um, and yes, we are going um, uh, wait, wait style. So this is a multiple choice. Okay. Um, during the uh, discussion that, that you brought up about hypocrisy, 
um, between Chung Sik Finkel McGraw, Major Napier, and John <laughs> John Percival Hackworth. Um, uh, John Percival Hackworth eats a steak sandwich upon which he puts something called McWhorter's Original Condiment. Um, which of the following three options are not in the masterful list of ingredients that Stevenson trots out for us to read. So two of these are real. Your job is to pick out the one that is not in that list. Got it. Option, option A, uranium mill tailings. Option B, nutria. Option C, autumn leaves. I think it's Nutria. You are correct. Um, and excellent work because there is a section in the middle where I was convinced Nutria were going to show up where he says nitrates, nitrites, nitrotes, and nitrutes, nutrites, natrotes, powdered pork, hair, pork nose hairs, um, but, not, but never Nutria. Um, will you suffer me reading the list? Uh, go ahead. I, I very much enjoyed this list, too. Um, although this, I, only, is... I only read it once, so I didn't cram for that. <laughs> We're talking Nutria, the giant rodents, right? That, yeah, that's... yeah, I figured okay. that, that, that as a... I was like, you know what? That's a plausible entry into this list that might stump I couldn't Justin. quite remember if autumn leaves were in there. I definitely remembered the uranium mill tailings. And then I <laughs> sort of vaguely recalled... It was interesting. I didn't. I didn't remember the phrase "autumn leaves," but I vaguely recalled imagining the taste of autumn leaves mm. and the song. It's a song. It's an important jazz standard. And I was like, "God damn it, Stevenson! Like, oh, really? You're amazing! Oh yeah, it's a wonderful song. It's autumn beautiful. leaves, or or yeah, yeah. Uh, or the sauce. So- what's the name of the sauce? Uh, the sauce is McWhorter's original condiment, but autumn leaves right. is in fact a is, is in fact a, a oh, jazz standard. I mean, yeah. it's I, to me, it's clearly based on um, Heinz brown sauce, and it Probably. the first three yeah. ingredients were pretty faithful. It's like molasses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we yeah. it's like the and first it, the first nine or so are are very yeah. plausible. Um, but yeah. it goes uh, if the manifest of ingredients on the bottle had been legible, it would have read something like this: water, blackstrap molasses, imported habanero peppers, salt, garlic, ginger, tomato puree, axle grease, real hickory smoke, snuff, butts of clove cigarettes, Guinness stout fermentation dregs, uranium mill tailings, muffler cores. Monosodium glutamate, nitrates, nitrites, nitrotes, and nitrutes, nutrites, natrotes, powdered pork nose hairs, <laughs> dynamite, <laughs> activated charcoal, match heads, used pipe cleaners, tar, nicotine, single malt whiskey, smoked beef lymph nodes, autumn leaves, red fuming nitric acid, bituminous coal, fallout, printer's ink, laundry starch, Drain cleaner, blue chrysotile asbestos, carrageenan, BHA, BHT, and natural flavorings. <laughs> a few uh, callbacks of Zodiac there with the activated charcoal and probably some of the other compounds as well. Totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, like, uh, you know, I mean, I can't, uh, you know, I love lists and books. Um, yeah. you, you can't not think of the list um, in Lolita. 
um, uh, when uh, Humbert is looking at um, uh, Dolores's um, list of students, uh, in which Dolores Hayes is suspended about uh, about a, a third of the way down, and at the end, Humbert goes, "A poem, forsooth, a poem." And and this is the same, you know, it's the same level of just, um, it's amazing. It's funny and fun, but at the same time, it is telling and important and uh, interesting. Is Do you think that we're supposed to understand that this is um, Hackworth's sort of like whimsical imagination as he's munching on this or is it just is it just the author inserting himself the, in the book I, like I like basically taking like a little guitar solo being like nitrates yeah i think lists usually are mm-hmm. i think it's the it's the effluvia that bounces around in writers brains and they're like i can't got can't fucking put this anywhere else and I've got to get rid of this like energy, yeah. and and they do, and it's it's I don't know lists are uh, Ian Fraser is another amazing list maker, um, and uh, one worthy of everybody's uh, everybody's um, reading. Um, so a couple moments in the book, I believe in the very first sentence, and also um, towards the end of the first half, there's a reference to the bells at St Mark's ringing changes. Mm. Do you know what ringing changes? means and i have multiple choice if you want if you want to take a guess without multiple okay a um it my guess would be that it rings the prayers between matins and vespers um but i'm not sure okay well let me give you let me give you the three options then um uh if you um that's not one of the options so I'll, i'll just go ahead and say although it's similar to one of the options um it refers to a notation system of bell ringing requiring several ringers where each ringer is responsible for one bell um, and the notation indicates chord changes in arpeggio patterns uh, for a particular song. So each ringer trains to learn whether or not their bell is part of a particular chord for that particular key. So the uh if that if that makes sense i can explain it again but that's no no that's i a. got it i mean basically it's we're talking about the the bell playing sort of as like chord changes on a chart chord changes on a chart b it refers to a particular melody sort of like what you were describing earlier played on a carillon which is a keyboard that controls bells mechanically uh so it can be played by one one person can play multiple bells Similar to Vespers, a call for prayer, but in this case, indicating the changing of the watch, which traditionally happens at midnight, 8 a.m., and 4 p.m. Ringing the changes of the watch, or ringing changes. Or C, again, a system of bell ringing, where each ringer controls a bell and then rings them according to an order that shifts shifts based on mathematical patterns. Hmm. Let me know if you want me to give them to you again, because that was a little bit complicated. No, I think I've got them. Um, you know, B, B feels like a good invention, but the fact of like a changing of a watch at a church is a little odd. Um, I am going to go... I'm going to go with A. It's C. Oh. 
<laughs> I, I, and I, I, if, and you've probably heard it if you've walked around an old college campus, a lot of mm-hmm. old college campus. Whenever you hear like ringing bells, where you're like, "What the hell is that?" That's not. It'll be like ding dong 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 dong. It sounds very chaotic, and then every now and again, something really beautiful will emerge from it. Which actually, I believe, the second time we hear about it, there's a description that Stevenson gives, kind of like what I just gave, which is that. Um, but yeah, and it, it'll be like each big bell ringer has a number, and then. The, if you look at the the notation of it, it's actually really interesting. They'll just it's kind of like a sestina. It'll just be like this time ring one six five four three two it, it, <laughs> two one, and next time ring like one three two four five seven. And those they'll sort of draw those out on a grid, and then the patterns will basically be kind of like shapes. So it's like the mm-hmm. person who's designing the patterns of the ring. The rings probably doesn't know what they're gonna sound like the first time unless they're like a like a Mozart level genius who can hear it yeah. in their head. The uh, the mathematical drawings are sort of like the inspiration, and then they're enacted by the the ringers. So why don't you say what's coming up next, and I will do our farewell. Uh, yeah, next time, uh, dear listener, we will be considering at least the second half of the Diamond Age and anything else that we decide to talk about. Great. Uh, thank you all for listening. As always, we would love a five-star rating. If you want to give a, if you have something critical to say, you can go ahead and send us an email. For now, you can send it to jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com or g at uppermiddlebrow.com. And uh, we'll see you next time. Are you someone who loved reading as a child, but the magic of it was lost amongst a combination of outrage, fuel, social media, adulting, and the rise of fascism? Or maybe you were that student who enjoyed reading The Great Gatsby, but got stuck with an English teacher who was phoning it in until she could start day drinking. Or maybe you're a left-brained person cursed with right-brained friends and would, just once, like to understand the greater context of that book they're all talking about over brunch? Or maybe you're all three, like me. If so, then do I have the podcast for you. In a world full of consumers that can't sit through a 30-second Netflix intro without hitting skip, Jesse and Chris manage to do the impossible. They keep your attention. Through a combination of engaging banter, bias-conscious discussions, humble wit, and genuine knowledge, the hosts share their passions for an eclectic mix of media that is approachable for the rest of us. Upper Middle Brow is a disarming excavation that reveals what is artful about everyday works of art. Their secret? They stand aside, leave their egos at the door, and let the art do the work. Their refreshing enthusiasm for often intimidating topics is infectious. You may even be tempted to stand on your desk and cry out, Oh, Captain, my Captain, after a listen. My thanks to the hosts for being the cool English teachers I was always told existed, but never managed to find for myself. That's a review from Welsh Wormling. And uh, thank you so much, Welsh Wormling, for your kind words and for your continued enthusiasm. Uh, We couldn't do it without readers like you. Other listeners, if you feel compelled to leave us a review as well, um, a review like Welsh Wormlings with a five-star rating really, really helps other people 
find the show. So please do so wherever you found us. Upper Middle Brow is a Small Point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes, creators and hosts. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>